Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hello, Behind the Knife listeners. This is Patrick Georgeoff. I want to give you a few updates on some of the things happening at Behind the Knife. First and foremost, our fellowship application is now available. Behind the Knife is growing, and we are looking for enthusiastic surgical residents to join our team. And we're offering a two-year fellowship starting September 1st of this year and ending June 30th, 2023. We're looking for residents who are taking part in a two-year uh, research time or academic development time of note. The fellowship is unpaid. We anticipate the average weekly time commitment will be at least 10 to 15 hours. And fellows will be deeply involved in behind-the-knife activities and will be expected to spearhead one of two major projects, the first of which focuses on video production and editing, and the second of which is looking to expand behind-the-knife to non-English speakers. So the application link can be found in the show notes for this episode, and uh, will be tweeted out multiple times on our Twitter account. So please take the time to apply. If you have any questions or concerns, don't hesitate to reach out to us. Number two, we are working on an amazing website with the help of 500 designs. This website is beautiful. It's going to be fully functional, and you'll be able to find all of your favorite high-yield, behind-the-knife content with a click of a button. And finally, Behind the Knife has partnered with Virginia Commonwealth University, to offer continuing medical education credits, not just to MDs, but also to advanced practice providers and nurses. That'll be rolled out as soon as our website is live. And I should mention, it's 100% free. Now let's dive into our first emergency general surgery journal review episode. Hello, BTK, and welcome to the first episode of our six-part series, Emergency General Surgery. My name is Graham Skelhorn Gross. I'm a fourth year general surgery resident at the University of Toronto. I'm joined by Drs. Ashley Nadler and Jordan Nada. Hi. Hello. Dr. Nadler is a general surgeon and section lead of acute care surgery at Sunnybrook Hospital, the largest hospital in Toronto, Canada. She is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto and founder of the Ontario chapter of the American College of Surgeons. Dr. Nada is a trauma surgeon and intensivist at the Health Sciences Centre in Winnipeg. He's a graduate of trauma and acute care surgery, as well as ICU fellowships at the University of Toronto. I can tell you from personal experience that these two are tremendous surgical teachers and totally badass surgeons. Thanks, Graham. Thanks so much, Graham. I'm excited to be here for the first episode of our hard-hitting series, the Journal Club on Emergency General Surgery, Laparoscopic Cholecystectomy in the Third Trimester. Before we delve into that, Ashley, why is general or emergency general surgery or EGS such an important topic? That's a great question, Jordan. All general surgeons and residents are very familiar with the typical EGS presentations, appendicitis, benign biliary disease, small bowel obstructions, and so many more. These conditions are very common. In fact, they exceed the incidence of newly diagnosed cancer and diabetes combined. But more importantly, EGS patients experience high rates of morbidity and mortality, and they account for only 11% of general surgery operations, but 28% of complications and 47% of deaths. 
those numbers really shocked me when I first read them. So, Dr. Nadler, what, what do you think contributes to this group of patients making up such a substantial percentage of our morbidity and mortality? Well, the answer, like probably everything in surgery, is that it's likely multifactorial. Patients requiring emergency general surgery can be quite comorbid, with a third having three or more medical issues on presentation. Also, unlike in elective surgery, we don't have time to optimize patients preoperatively, and many patients present with severe physiologic derangements. Finally, unlike in other general surgery subspecialties, there's little standardization or regionalization when it comes to the care EGS patients receive. As much as this kind of outcome disparity can be pretty daunting, I think it also presents us with an awesome opportunity to improve outcomes for our general surgery patients by being thoughtful about the care we provide to this high-risk subset. Exactly. And it's with that in mind that we designed this podcast series. We aim to tackle the most challenging cases and controversies faced by emergency general surgeons and residents on a daily basis. Our goal is to give our listeners tangible, data-driven strategies that you can implement on your very next call ship. Sounds great. Let's get started. So I was on call the other night and conveniently I saw a patient perfect for this discussion. We were asked to see a 30-year-old G1 P0 woman at 30 weeks pregnant with right upper quadrant pain. She was admitted under obstetrics for monitoring and further workup. She was otherwise healthy. It was a natural pregnancy with no complications to date, and she had never had this pain before. It started the night before and became more severe, along with nausea and vomiting. Her vitals were within normal limits, but she was quite tender on exam with a positive Murphy sign. Her white blood cell count was 16, and an ultrasound showed a distended gallbladder with wall wall thickness of 6 millimeters, a stone impacted at the cystic duct, and a positive sonographic Murphy's. The fetus had a normal heart rate detected. So while it was clear that the diagnosis was acute cholecystitis, I acknowledge that the management recommendation in third trimester is not as clear. That's a great case. I have to admit that I always feel a bit uncomfortable when I'm consulted on a pregnant patient. From interpreting symptoms in labs to picking the right type of imaging, not to mention the critical questions of when and how we should operate. So, Dr. Nada, how prevalent is surgical disease in pregnancy? Well, approximately 1% to 2% of pregnancies require non-obstetrical surgery. And of those patients, about 45% are surgical diseases of the GI tract. So general surgeons see these patients actually quite a bit. Most common thing we see, of course, is acute appendicitis with benign biliary disease coming in a close second. There's actually an increased incidence of gallstone formation in pregnancy due to hormonal changes that cause gallbladder stasis. Up to 6% of pregnant patients develop gallstones and up to 31% develop sludge. The risk seems to be higher among patients with increased BMI and increased parity. Okay. So a significant number of pregnant patients have stones, and we all know that these stones can lead to serious problems such as acute cholecystitis, cholecystitis, cholangitis, gallstone pancreatitis. But in the general population, we treat these conditions with laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Now, I've heard that operating in the first trimester is associated with fetal loss, and operating in the third trimester risks premature delivery. So what should we offer our pregnant patients with benign biliary disease? Well, Graham, a lot of that is surgical dogma based on older research that predates most modern surgical and antenatal developments. For example, a lot of patients in those studies had open cholecystectomies, so the answer is not so clear. 
In fact, several major societies, such as the Society of Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgery, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and the American Society of Anesthesiologists recently updated their guidelines on the subjects. Exactly, Jordan. The SAGE's guidelines state that laparoscopic cholecystectomy is the treatment of choice for the pregnant patient with symptomatic gallbladder disease, regardless of trimester. And the joint statement from the associations of obstetrics and gynecologists, as well as anesthesiologists, states that pregnant women should never be denied medically necessary surgery or have their surgery delayed regardless of trimester. All right. So the guidelines say that we should be operating but you guys are in practice. What's actually happening out there in the real world? So there's a few studies that I looked at this and found that about 80 to 90% of pregnant patients with biliary colic are initially managed non-operatively. So lap cholecystectomy in pregnancy is most commonly performed in the second trimester with a lot of surgeons hesitant to offer surgery, especially late in the third trimester. Yeah, definitely. Laparoscopic cholecystectomy seems especially contentious in the third trimester. This spans from... 27 weeks to term, with term considered at 37 weeks or beyond. Managing a surgical disease non-operatively can become a big problem as 40 to 60% of patients develop recurrent symptoms and require future hospital admission. Delayed lap coli in the setting of acute cholecystitis is also associated with bad maternal and fetal outcomes such as fetal demise and premature delivery. I think it's also worth pointing out that studying outcomes in this high-risk population is quite challenging. There are no randomized controlled trials evaluating surgical outcomes for, pa- for pregnant patients with benign biliary disease. So most of the studies we have are small and often reflect single institution experience or case series. And essentially all the data is retrospective. Yikes. Well, this sure puts surgeons and their pregnant patients in a difficult position. A high stakes surgical decision without great data to inform it. But as always, we need to use the data we have available to make the best clinical decisions we can. So without further ado, let's take a deep dive into the literature guiding decision-making for laparoscopic cholecystectomy in the third trimester. So today we're going to tackle this topic by taking a close look at the two largest retrospective studies that address this issue. The first, cholecystectomy during the third trimester of pregnancy, proceed or delay, published in 2019 by Zeven Fong et al. And the second, considering delay of cholecystectomy in the third trimester, published in 2020 by Julie Hong and colleagues. Yeah, these are two often referenced papers in the field, and spoiler alert, they come to somewhat different conclusions. So we'll try to help to consolidate the data into a relatively cohesive take-home message for our listeners. Sounds fun. Let's get started. First of all, we're going to talk about the paper by Fong et al. This group wanted to re-examine the question of whether cholecystectomy was safe in the third trimester of pregnancy for all forms of symptomatic benign biliary disease in keeping with the guidelines at the time of publication. The study was performed using data from California, and the primary aim was to compare clinically important outcomes in cholecystectomy occurring in the third trimester of pregnancy, which they termed the antepartum period, in comparison to those in the early postpartum period. And as far as the methods, so this is a retrospective administrative database-derived analysis. They took their data from the Office of Statewide Health Planning and Development, which is a database they had access to. Database is quite unique, though, in that it includes all inpatient, outpatient, and emergency department visits for all age ranges, regardless of insurance status. So they captured visits occurring between 2005 and 2014. They used ICD-9 diagnoses and procedure codes for classification. 
They define the third trimester as three months before delivery and postpartum as three months after delivery. Um, patients were included if they were female and had a cholecystectomy from three months before to three months after delivery. Had to be a benign pathology, uh, uncomplicated and complicated biliary disease were included. So biliary colic, acute cholecystitis, cholecystitis, and gallstone pancreatitis. They excluded patients who were male, those with simultaneous abdominal surgical procedures other than a C-section, anyone with a previous cholecystostomy tube, or related cancer or malignant pathology with subsequent cancer treatment within a year. They also looked at readmissions, which they defined as unscheduled inpatient admissions after their cholecystectomy, but they didn't specify a timeline here, uh, and they censored for any obstetrical causes. For their outcome, they looked at a composite outcome of adverse maternal outcome defined as eclampsia, antepartum hemorrhage, or preterm delivery. As far as statistical analysis, they did unadjusted analyses for group comparisons and then followed that with a multivariable regression analysis. They controlled for several important covariates, including age, race, payer status, and Charleston comorbidity index, obesity, previous preterm delivery, previous hospitalization for benign biliary disease, the setting, as well as whether it's an urban uh, uh, hospital and the teaching status of the hospital. And they accounted for clustering by individual hospitals as well. All right, sounds really interesting. So let's take a look at their results. So in that study, they were able to get 403 patients who had their cholecystectomy in the third trimester. This group is referred to as the antepartum group. And they compared this group to 17,490 patients who had their cholecystectomy within three months of delivery, this being the postpartum group. If you just look at baseline characteristics, the antepartum group was slightly older and were slightly more comorbid. Interestingly, 44% of them had a previous inpatient admission for benign biliary disease before they had their cholecystectomy. In comparison, the postpartum group, only 5% had had a previous inpatient admission for benign biliary disease. Among the group that had their cholecystectomy um, in the antepartum group, so the ones that had their cholecystectomy before they delivered, they were less likely to have their operation as an outpatient, more likely to have their cholecystectomy at a teaching or teaching-affiliated hospital. Their length of stay were longer, three days versus one day, and this was associated with a higher cost at the index admission. Their procedures were more likely to be open, with 13% of them receiving open cholecystectomies versus 2% in the postpartum group. However, importantly, there was no difference in bio-leak or common bile duct injury. When they did their adjusted analysis, they found that there was no cost difference, However, the antepartum group had longer length of stays and had a higher uh, rate of 30-day readmission with an odds ratio of 2.05. Interesting findings, Graham. When they looked at their unadjusted uh, primary composite outcomes, so again, that's eclampsia, hemorrhage, and preterm delivery, they found that this was higher in the antepartum operation group, 26% versus 13%. They also found that each individual component was higher uh, in addition to the overall composite. When they did their adjusted multivariable regression, um, they also found that their outcome was increased in the antepartum group. Although there was no increase in the individual components for eclampsia and hemorrhage, this seemed to be largely driven by the preterm delivery increase. They then followed this up with a subset analysis for antepartum women without a previous hospitalization. There were 226 of these patients and postpartum uh, women with an inpatient hospitalization within a year before childbirth. There were 955 of these patients. Sorry, Dr. Nada, this, this seemed like a very important point. And uh, I was wondering, could, could we just talk a little bit more about how they came up with these groups and, and what they were attempting to compare? Yeah, it's a great question, Graham. So they, they recognized, rightly so, that comparing patients who had a 
um, antepartum operation with those who underwent an operation postpartum may not be comparable groups. So uh, as a way to try to account for the inherent differences between these groups, they wanted to look at the antepartum patients who hadn't had a previous hospitalization with the assumption being that these patients were receiving an operation without any trial at conservative management. And then they also wanted to look at postpartum patients who did present with some sort of benign biliary disease within their pregnancy, with the assumption being that those are patients who received some sort of conservative management and then were able to be postponed and have their operation in the postpartum period. So kind of creating more of an apples to apples comparison uh, to find more comparable groups. So they did an adjusted analysis of these two groups, and they found that there was still a longer length of stay, a higher cost of hospitalization uh, during the cholecystectomy, uh, but no increase in 30-day readmission, and again, higher composite outcome, although by a slightly lesser degree, again, driven by the higher preterm delivery. Thanks, Jordan. That really explains that well. Um, I want to talk a bit about the strengths of this study. Uh, it was a quite a large population-based study, which is great. Uh, they really considered clinically important outcomes. And then they do verify some important findings of the other studies, including significantly higher rate of open cholecystectomy in antepartum pregnancy. In addition to that, there are definitely some weaknesses we need to talk about. I think the most significant weakness in this study is the inability to differentiate based on the severity of the benign biliary disease. So the cause of the presentation is not described or really accounted for in the study, like colic versus acute cholecystitis versus gallstone pancreatitis, et cetera. The subgroup analysis still doesn't really compare the same patients. You know, postpartum may have had disease in any trimester, which can certainly affect those outcomes. And then clinical factors such as unresolving symptoms requiring intervention or sepsis uh, isn't really captured in this type of analysis. So presumably patients with more severe or unimproving symptoms would be both more likely to require operation during pregnancy and more likely to develop the composite outcome. Eclampsia as well is somewhat of a troublesome outcome measure to be included in part of the composite uh, in that the timing of the diagnosis is uncertain. You know, it's unclear if the diagnosis of eclampsia might actually precede the exposure of cholecystectomy that they're looking at and actually influence the decision to operate itself. So drawing any causative conclusion about eclampsia and cholecystectomy becomes quite difficult when considering the cholecystectomy as your exposure. The length of stay and cost of admission comparisons as well only take into account the admission for the cholecystectomy, so they don't account for any potential recurrent or multiply recurrent admissions in patients that are treated non-operatively. So this high rate of open procedures that they looked at also included C-section combined with cholecystectomy. And we don't know if the C-section was prompted by the gallbladder surgery or the biliary disease led to fetal distress and the need for a C-section. Yeah, I think those are really important points. So you know, there's some things they did really well and, and some concerns that we brought up. We'll leave our listeners to decide what, you know, they think of this in the end. But the authors concluded that whenever possible, women presenting with benign biliary disease in the third trimester of pregnancy should have their cholecystectomy delayed until the postpartum period. Let's move along and evaluate our next paper. So we're going to move on to the paper by Hong et al., so it's actually quite similar to the Fong paper in terms of comparing maternal and fetal outcomes in the antepartum to the postpartum period for cholecystectomies. And they actually use the same time period that they studied. This time it's done in the New York State using their databases, which Jordan will get into. And it was published shortly after the Fong paper came out. 
Thanks, Ashley. And for their methodology, so they use methodology very similar to that used in the paper by Fong et al. As a retrospective analysis, again, they use the New York Statewide Planning and Research Cooperative System Database. They again use ICD-9 diagnostic and procedure codes. They looked at women over 18 years old only. And for ex other exclusion criteria, so they you know, added patients that were less than 18 year old, years old, as well as anyone with multiple gestations, multiple delivery methods, and one patient was excluded due to death during their postpartum cholecystectomy. They did a subgroup analysis, which was analogous to that done by Fong et al., for readmissions, they looked at any admission uh, for any non-obstetrical reason, and the composite measure that they looked at was quite similar to that in the other paper, but they, they excluded eclampsia for a lot of reasons that uh, we discussed here earlier, and their statistical analysis was largely the same. Okay, great. So pretty similar studies, same timeline, different place. Let's take a look what they found. They had identified 82 patients who had their cholecystectomy in the third trimester, and compared these to 5,040 patients who had a postpartum cholecystectomy. Again, they compared baseline characteristics and found that in the antepartum group, the patients were slightly older, had a higher rate of open cholecystectomy, and this was interesting. The rate for the antepartum group was 19.5% compared to 1.9% uh, for the postpartum group. And they also found a higher rate of inpatient operations among the antepartum group. At baseline, there was no difference in the race or ethnicity of these patients. One nice feature of this paper is that they provide the, uh, the diagnosis that the patients had. The most common diagnosis in both groups was acute cholecystitis, and in fact, was 78% for both groups. Uh, gallstone pancreatitis was the second most common diagnosis and was 20% in the antepartum group and 12% in the postpartum group. There was no difference between the groups in bile injuries. They did find that the antepartum group had a longer length of stay with a median length of stay of four days compared to two days for the postpartum group. They also had increased preterm delivery at 18.3% compared to 7.56% for the uh, postpartum group. There was no differences in fetal demise and there was no differences in the composite maternal outcome. They also compared outcomes in their open cholecystectomy group. They found that this procedure did not affect the rates of bile duct injury or preterm delivery. However, it was associated with a longer length of stay and risk of any type of surgical complication. They list a number of factors that are associated with preterm delivery. They find that this is more likely in academic hospitals, among non-smokers, and among comorbid patients, especially those with hypertension and diabetes. Fortunately, fetal demise was extremely rare in both groups. Now, interestingly, when they did their subgroup analysis, and remember, they did it exactly the same way as the other paper, they found that this left them with 80 patients in the antepartum group out of 82 that they started with, but only 22 patients in their postpartum group out of over 5,000 that they started with. When they compared outcomes, they were all exactly the same between groups. So there was no difference in preterm delivery, mortality, complications, fetal demise, bile duct injury, length of stay, or the maternal and composite outcomes. There was an increased risk of cesarean section in the antepartum group. Thanks, Grim, for going through those results. Really interesting. So again, we're going to go through the strengths and weaknesses for this paper. So this was, again, a large study, especially when considering that how difficult it is to get information on pregnant patients who had surgery, although it is a smaller group than the Fong study. Again, they did a subgroup analysis, which was excellent. Uh, and what's really great about this paper is they describe the type of gallbladder disease. 
What's really interesting is that this study failed to replicate the results from the Fong study as subgroup analysis eliminated all differences in outcomes. There's definitely some notable weaknesses as well. There's unfortunately no report of duration or severity of the symptoms uh, and the disease. So of course, the outcomes could be affected by the clinical disease factors that aren't captured in database research. As far as the subgroup analysis and acknowledging that some of these weaknesses also apply to the other study, when they look at the antepartum patients, although patients are excluded if they had a previous presentation related to biliary disease, some symptomatic disease, of course, will potentially be missed. So for example, just because you haven't been hospitalized for disease doesn't mean that you haven't been symptomatic or seen in the emergency department if it's not captured in this database, which isn't 100% clear. For the postpartum patients, they included any patient with a presentation for benign biliary disease in the last year, which of course could be at any time during their pregnancy and not necessarily just in the third trimester, so not necessarily comparable. Um, and what's interesting too is this study reflected, the sub-analysis reflected only a very small subset of the postpartum group. So as Graham mentioned, down from 5,040 to only 29 patients. So it's clear that most patients in the postpartum group were not hospitalized previously, and thus don't represent uh, you know, a subset of patients who had surgery delayed, rather patients who just had their surgery in the postpartum period with potentially no previous symptoms. And then the last issue is the numbers become so small at the end, especially in the subset analysis, you know, do these true differences exist, but was it simply too small of a number to detect a true difference? And finally, the exact gestational age is unknown. They calculated this from subtraction from the delivery date using their ICD-9 codes and times, um, but the exact timing in pregnancy is really impossible to know. Well, thanks again. Great points by both of you. So much to think about. The authors conclude that New York statewide data suggests that although laparoscopic cholecystectomy is safe in pregnancy, delay of cholecystectomy should be discussed in the third trimester due to an increased risk of preterm delivery. So why don't we compare the two studies to each other and see if we can uh, come up with some overarching themes? For sure, Graham, and I think this is a good way to bring it all home. So as far as comparing the two papers, so these are two large retrospective studies comparing outcomes in women who are receiving a cholecystectomy in the antepartum or postpartum period over a decade in California in the Fong study and New York in the Hong study. Fong study found that antepartum cholecystectomy was associated with worse outcomes, predominantly preterm delivery, than those done in the postpartum period. And the Hong study found antepartum cholecystectomy associated with preterm delivery, but when they looked at their subgroup analysis, no differences persisted. So overall, there were different take-home messages. Delay operating versus antepartum cholecystectomy being safe, but discuss a possible delay with your patients. So why does that difference exist? That's the real question. Yeah, so there's uh, about three types of differences that exist. So the first is differences in the databases. So obviously, uh, the Fong study used the California database, uh, but it captured all admissions in the state whereas the Hong study in the New York database, it's unclear if it captures all admissions. For both, patients could have received medical care elsewhere at any point that wouldn't be captured in the databases. And then also with respect to that is, is there chance sampling error? The Hong study was smaller and maybe this reduction in power was due to a reduced sample size. And then finally, there's differences in the patient populations between California and New York. We can tell just by looking at the data in terms of race, we saw a difference of 55 versus 25% Hispanic patients. What other differences may exist in the patient populations? 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think another important difference might be differences in the diseases that are captured. So in the study by Hong and all, they reported the types of the diseases. So we know about how many patients had acute cholecystitis and gallstone pancreatitis. Unfortunately, they didn't substratify those between antepartum and postpartum groups. But we really don't know in, in the Fong and all study. And, and I think this is quite important because there's a number of other papers in the literature that demonstrate that surgery is really important in the management of acute cholecystitis during pregnancy, and there's better uh, outcomes uh, for mom and baby. And I would um, refer our listeners to our show notes where we reference these papers. So, you know, I think it's quite likely that capturing all patients with benign biliary disease in a study like this is just too broad an instrument for us to really be able to give uh, personalized advice to the patient right in front of us. Absolutely. And finally, there's some key differences in the subgroup analysis that are quite revealing. So as we mentioned briefly previously, when you look at the antepartum patients and you look at the patients who had not had a previous presentation for biliary disease, in the FONG study, they go from 403 total patients down to 226, so about half their population. Whereas in the Hong study, nearly, nearly all of them are retained. They go from 82 patients to down, just, or down to 80. And then looking at the postpartum population in the FONG study, uh, they go from 17,490 to 955 patients. Uh, but in the Hong study, nearly all of these patients are eliminated, going from 5,040 to 29. So I think this implies that there are some really key differences in the source population that probably are underestimated in the actual research uh, report itself. Uh, There may also be related differences in practices in each one of these states, as well as potentially with the methodology of the paper. Yeah, these subgroup analyses really make me think that that's what they actually wanted to study, but they didn't have enough patients to do so. Anyway, the titles of the articles alone lead to biased conclusion to delay surgery for benign biliary disease in the third trimester. The main risk identified from both papers is preterm delivery, while Fong's paper also showed a longer length of stay and readmission rate for patients having surgery in the third trimester. The patients in this group were also older, had greater comorbidities, and had a high rate of previous inpatient admission for benign biliary disease. I wonder why they didn't have surgery on their first presentation, potentially in another trimester, when there may be more equipoise about operative management. Regardless, many patients get to the third trimester with biliary disease, and we need an approach. These are likely the best studies that we will have, since it's very unlikely that anyone's going to do a randomized controlled trial in a vulnerable group having surgery in pregnancy. I do think the management is more granular than the studies have shown, and there are three main issues we need to consider. So the first issue, as I see it, is timing within the third trimester. I think we have to appreciate that the third trimester is long, and there's probably a big difference in the considerations between a patient presenting early, like the one in your case, Dr. Nadler, and one that presents much later. The studies we presented today don't include any data on timing within the third trimester. So we don't really know how many of the patients were late of those who were delayed, how many who were induced among those who are operated, and what the maternal and fetal outcomes were based on timing within the third trimester. One consideration is the technical feasibility of actually performing the surgery. If the surgeon doesn't think laparoscopy is safe or feasible, does that justify an open procedure? And I really don't think that we know that. We know open procedures lead to longer hospital stays and increased postoperative complications, but no one has directly compared the maternal and fetal outcomes for these patients with those managed non-operative. The next big consideration is the type of biliary disease. 
So of course, we know that the decision of whether or not to operate probably hinges on what form of benign biliary disease the patient has and whether or not a fetus, the fetus is in distress. We know that the pathophysiology of acute cholecystitis or gallstone pancreatitis is much different than that of biliary colic. So presumably the effect on both the mother and the fetus is vastly different as well. It's hard to reconcile the findings of these studies with other studies on acute cholecystitis in pregnancy, which strongly suggests that delays in operative management are actually associated with more preterm delivery and worsened outcomes. So we think, therefore, that the type of disease is likely a significant player in these outcomes. It should be a major consideration in the decision whether or not to offer operative management to these patients. The last issue that we should consider when trying to make decisions for these patients is that maternal distress leads to fetal distress. The studies are focused on the risks with antepartum surgery, but use postpartum surgery as a surrogate for risks without antepartum surgery. We don't know if the patients who have worse outcomes in the surgery group have delays to surgery. Was conservative management tried and failed? If the mother's in distress, this will impact the fetus. So I think we need to take that first and foremost, especially when the fetus is viable if preterm delivery were to occur. Okay, so timing type of biliary disease, and maternal distress leading to fetal distress are key concepts. We think that when surgeons are faced with the really tough decisions, they should ask themselves the following questions. Can a lap poly be done safely? Can the baby be delivered safely at this time? How severe is the biliary disease? Can operative management wait? Is there any fetal or maternal distress? So our recommendation would be that for patients presenting in the third trimester with benign biliary disease, especially late in the trimester and with mild disease, that having an in-depth discussion and potentially waiting until after delivery would be reasonable. However, in the setting of severe biliary disease, more clinically unwell patients, and especially earlier in the third trimester when operative management is more feasible and the timeline to the postpartum period is longer, we can't recommend against operative management based on these studies alone. And the most important thing is having this discussion with the patient and taking into account their preferences after informed consent. Yeah, that's great. So I think taking all this back to the case and the patient that I saw. So uh, we consulted with obstetrics and we did end up offering a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. We talked about the risks of preterm delivery. Given the severity of the patient's pain and her risk of recurrent episodes during pregnancy, she decided to proceed with surgery. Fetal heart rate was confirmed post-op and there was no evidence of fetal distress. She was well at follow-up and delivered her baby in her 39th week. Well, that's just great news. Great case. Great talk. I, I don't know about you guys, but my head's spinning a little bit with all those numbers and the antenatal, postnatal groups. So we wanted to wrap this up, but we knew that it wouldn't be a real behind the knife episode if we didn't do quick hits at the end. But we wanted to put our own spin on it instead. So instead of quick hits, we're going to play the first ever round of Coley No Coley. Ooh, what's this game, Coley No Coley? Well, Dr. Nadler, I'm glad you asked. The game is simple. I'm going to give you a clinical scenario, and you have to tell me what you would do. But you can only say coli or no coli. That's high pressure. All right, bearing in mind, of course, any actual decision would be made as a shared decision with the patient. But this is based on our, clini our clinical preference alone. All right, round one. Dr. Nadler, you're in the hot seat. You've got a 27-year-old G2P1 with acute cholecystitis at 27 weeks. Do you coli or no coli? Coli. Dr. Nada? That's a Coley for me. All right, two for Coley. So this patient has a twin sister who's exactly the same in every way, except that she's got acute cholecystitis at 32 weeks. Dr. Nadler? Also gets a Coley. Dr. Nada? 
Coley. Well, wouldn't you know, she has a friend who's exactly the same way in every single way, 27 years old, G2P1, acute cholecystitis, but she's at 36 weeks. Dr. Nadler? Ooh, I'd really want to talk to the patient and let her decide. Not an option, Dr. Nadler, <laughs> in the game of Coley, no Coley. Okay, um, no Coley. No Coley here, too. For no Coley. Okay, let's change it up a little bit. So now we've got our 27-year-old G2P1, but she's presenting with acute cholecystitis at 32 weeks in a hospital with no NICU and no maternal fetal medicine. Dr. Nadler? No coli, but transfer to another hospital. Dr. Nada? No coli. I'm going to score that one for Dr. Nada for uh, following the only rule of coli, no coli, which is that you're <laughs> coli or no coli. All right, a couple more. So back to you, Dr. Nadler. You've got a 34-weeker G2P1 acute cholecystitis, but she's tachycardic hypotensive, and she's a 34-weeker. So coli. Dr. Nada? Coley. All right, here's one for you. 42 years old, G2P1, acute cholecystitis at 38 weeks. The patient is status post-liver resection for a hepatic adenoma that was complicated by dehiscence and healing by secondary intention of her upper midline laparotomy. Dr. Nadler? No coley. Dr. Nada? No anything. Definitely not a coley. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last case. This lady's 40 years old. She had an IVF pregnancy and she's had three previous miscarriages at 34 weeks. Dr. Nadler? No coley. And Dr. Nada. I'm going to have to go with no coley as well. Well, thank you both. That was great. That was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you playing the first ever episode of Coley, No Coley. And I really appreciate our listeners sticking it out right to the end with us. I hope you enjoyed our first episode. Please stay tuned for episode two, where we're going to do challenges in clinical practices, cancer emergencies. Now, I guess there's only one thing left to do. I have to declare the first ever winner of Coley, No Coley. And that winner is going to be Dr. Nada for being the only one who followed the rules. So Dr. Nada, as the winner, I think you get the honors. All right. Thanks for joining us and dominate the day, but do it politely because we're Canadian. <laughs> Until next time, dominate the day. 